Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Steph Curdy Show. We have an awesome guest here today, my BFF, Sam, no last name. <laughs> Thanks for the introduction, Steven. What's up, Sammy? Uh... Guys, we're going to get right into it today. We'll probably go for 50 minutes. And here are the general topics we're going to cover. How do Sam and I know each other? Uh, soccer, basically everything. This could even turn into its own standalone soccer podcast. We might dive into relationships. We might not. I'm not sure because you didn't answer that question that I just asked you right before. Pre-podcast, yeah. the pre-podcast conversation. It's tough having this talk with Steven because of the vastness of the conversation topics that are potentially on the table. Uh, it's an interesting, it'll be an interesting direction to see where this goes. Do you have notes? I have notes from, from before. What do you mean? From like things that I thought of before, but there's nothing, I don't think they're different from your notes. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> I have like five bullet points. So uh, we might dip into relationships. I would love if you brought up some of your points over there. We ordered some Santucci's pizza. Mm. Today's sponsor is Santucci's Pizza. Original square crust. They've got several locations in Philadelphia. We love the works. It's got everything on it. It's crusty. It's crunchy. It's it's delicious. Uh, so Santucci's sponsor today. They are also across the street and are <laughs> the reason for my additional weight gain. We might dip in... Uh, We'll get to Robert Burns sponsor single malt scotch whiskey halfway through. We need to share the time. The, one of the other conversations we might go into is uh, economic themes, the economy, big picture, macro. Sam and I went to college together. We had we studied economics together. We passed and failed tests together. Barely, <laughs> barely passed and failed tests. I maybe we uh, there might have been one where we failed. Uh, but fun shout times. out options and futures. <laughs> Fun times, nonetheless. And then the last topic, if we get there, is about religion because I had somewhat of a religious experience last night. Hmm. Shout out to other listeners, Dre, Big Al, and the McCurdy Incises. What's up, guys? All right, let's get this going. Sam, how do we know each other? So Stephen and I went to Lafayette College together. We played soccer together. Um, my first memory of Stephen and even though I'm sure we played soccer together or against each other growing up, you know, Mount Laurel versus Nether, I'm sure Nether won all of those competitions, but we'll talk, we'll talk about that. Um, my first memory of Steven is in uh, freshman camp, which was summer of 2007. And my first recollection was uh, just how smooth that Steven was on the ball. Wow. It was, it was honestly really impressive. I hadn't really seen anyone who could, just sort of float by defenders, which is an incredible <laughs> skill on the soccer field. Uh, for those of you who are not um, as attuned to the soccer world. This is a soccer podcast, so only soccer people are listening. <laughs> but being able to beat somebody in a one-on-one -on -one situation and still be in control and be driving towards the goal is, is an incredible skill and one that I do not possess at all. And I just remember Steven uh, gliding by people, and I was like, damn, this is, this is going to be a good year. My second memory of the same day was Yanks. Shout out, Andy Pianco, if you're listening. Shout out. Just straight up killing people in goal. So uh, that's, those are my memories. He never stopped doing that and become, became infamously known as Killer. Killer. Uh, all right. Well, I'll take that as a huge compliment um, because – uh, my first memory of Sam, if you guys don't know who he is, he's like 6'4", 6'5", blonde, enormous. 
and he used to have the biggest curly blonde lock hairs you you ever saw. Um, Jamie, can we get a photo of Sam? <laughs> Shout out Joe Rogan. Everybody makes that joke too. <laughs> Uh, Producer Jamie. Anyway, uh, Sam didn't know me, but I remembered Sam from playing against him in a club, and I hated playing against him because you don't usually have a 6'5 center midfielder who has good feet. And it is like, why does this person dominate the center midfield and have good technique? And we always lost to Nether. And some kid elbowed me in the nose (laughs) against Nether, and like I was just afraid of your team. Carl and yeah. like you and there was a white guy John Paul we had a very athletic John team Paul but there's up. another yeah. guy Maurice Baptiste no a white guy but Maurice too Reese Reese big boy yeah we had a very athletic physically like dominant a, team growing he was up like husky played hard I don't oh, know Aaron Gildner yeah yeah yeah. yeah 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 he elbowed me in the in the nose brutal and so I never had but headed I never went to head a ball ever again after. <laughs> so anyway, we've known each other. I've known probably Sam longer because I remembered him, and it's offensive that he doesn't remember me from club soccer. I was just easy to pick out. Make being sure the six micro- five, sure. being six five with a big Jufro, you know, it was, it was easy to pick me out. So yeah, that's true. You know, just... Andreas was on that team. Previous podcast guest was on my team. I do remember Andreas because, as mentioned in the podcast with Andreas, he was a massive human being even as a child. You know, we were all children, hadn't even thought of puberty. Andre was already sporting a full beard, and, you know, it was it was different. So, so I want to go into soccer with you specifically because we both really enjoyed playing together the few times that we did in college yeah. because of injuries and just because of coaching styles, <laughs> which I want, definitely want to talk about. But then we also played a lot of small-sided together in Philadelphia, which was just for fun, but also like we got to just pick apart kids, and it brought me back to my younger days. <laughs> but we also have opposing enough views for for us to be like, why do we kind of disagree on soccer and tactics? And I think the biggest thing that we disagree on is like, and maybe we don't disagree, so can you clarify this? But I believe you have an idea of how tactics should be and formations. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think about soccer in those ways. Yeah, I think to summarize our our viewpoint is I think you – are of the mind that you just put the best 11 players out on the field and, and what will be what will be, um, which I think works well, particularly as a younger player. You need to learn without overt instruction from your coach where to move, how to move. <clears throat> and I think if you if you had a coach like that growing up, that was probably really important to your development to be able to think about all the different moving pieces on the field. But as you get older and the game becomes more sophisticated and less about who is better than who because, you know, the talent gap becomes much narrower, I think that the style in which you play and the formation in which you play and where you put certain players matters a lot. You know, if I think about just our sophomore year, which was the one of the few times that Steve and I were able to play together and healthy, the first game of the year we played West Virginia, we sat, we, we, 
set up in a four four two diamond formation. Why would you even remember that? Because this is I remember that these things are important, Stephen, is what I'm trying to explain to you. <laughs> so we set up in a four four two diamond and I was at the top of the diamond. Stephen was at the side. Stephen ended up scoring the game winning goal versus West Virginia. It was a huge moment for Lafayette soccer at, at the time. Then due to, you know, many circumstances and uh, our coach, you know, uh, his negative view on the game, we switched to basically a 5-2-3 in which Steven was the right wing back and ended up having a fantastic season. Second team all Patriot League, if, I, if my memory serves. But I think that was to the detriment of our ability to score uh, goals. Even though we had the same 11 people on the field, they were set up in a different way with a different style. And, you know, we lost to schools like Temple and, you know, fucking temple <laughs> all right so you're you're 100 right and in that scenario uh, yeah i don't think i should be playing right wing back for a whole season right. because somebody got injured because i love being an attacking player so we agree on that like i agree with you that positioning matters mm -hmm. and so, so may, I, I think this is going to be a quick podcast. Maybe we don't I think, disagree. <laughs> I, think, I think we're just going to get very quick. I just, um, it's a hard thing talking about Lafayette mm. soccer because I think there was a specific tactic in mind at that school because of the coach and it was defensive minded and I'm all out attack I'm a good defender, but I'm like, I want to attack. I don't want to sit back. Mm -hmm. It's boring. It's a it's a constriction of creativity. You're a good attacking player. And yeah, everybody has to play defense, but I just don't, like you saying we were playing a 4-4-2 four, four, diamond. Every time a coach has brought that up to me in life, my brain turns off and they're just talking bullshit to me. And here's why. Before a game or in the middle of the game at halftime or watching tape, a coach goes into 4-2-5-1, And in theory, I get that you're trying to give us shape. But mm -hmm. when you get out onto the field, different variables are at play. And it's a great point in that your starting formation is very different than what your ultra defensive formation will be, you know, when you're inside your own box or your transition when you're transitioning to defense to offense and then what your final attacking position will be. So you're right. It's just a base framework, but how players move in that framework and the roles of different players in that framework, I think can utilize your best players in, in certain ways. And, and I think that, you know, given our shared experience at Lafayette, I think that the system that we utilized did not take advantage of our best players' strengths, which was one of the reasons that we weren't as successful as, as we probably could have been. So I think I think you're right in that formation in a way, once you're once you enter the game, it plays less of a factor. But in terms of setting your overall strategy, I think it I think it does have a significant impact, particularly on the margin, right? I mean, if Lafayette's okay, playing like Penn State, point. you know, if Lafayette's playing Penn State, Penn State's gonna beat us because they have you know, more talented players, you know, doesn't matter what formation we play, but if we're playing Colgate and Colgate setting up in a certain style of play and there's a better way to counter that 
style of play you know we should we should consider that i think that's a i think that's a very informed idea what happens at the margin where is the slight advantage Mm -hmm. that you can gain over an organizational difference that a coach would be able to implement rather than just a team of players going out there and trying to figure it out on the fly yeah, I think you bring up a, a good point. I think the of course I do. The downside with having your players figure it out is if it's just one 90 minute game and they don't figure it out till minute 15, you could already be 2-0 down by that point. You know, it's you don't have the luxury of time in a high pressure situation. You have to get it right from the first minute. Man, what do you know about the other team and how they're going to play and who their players well, are? Well, I guess you you have video. And you're not standing there and you don't know how all your 11 guys are feeling. One has a stomach ache. <laughs> One like No, I, those those things absolutely matter. You know, you don't necessarily know how the other team is going to come out, but if you know they have an amazing attacking midfielder, you're not going to put me at defensive mid because you know that I won't defend them at all. You know, like or if you say, "Hey, look, these people, they play a flat four across the across the midfield. Why don't we put Sam at defensive midfield because he doesn't have to actually defend anybody. He can just win balls and distribute." You know, having at least an idea in your mind of how you want it to play out. And I think you're right. You don't want to overly engineer it. You don't want you know particularly kids, eighteen year old kids, to get in their own heads. But having a strategy. Well, you know, yeah, could we're have talking at a certain age too. You start. Sure. Yeah. 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 You don't want this. Yeah. You couldn't do this with 14 year old kids, but. Okay. Um, I, I want to be, I want to be specific to something because we can talk. I want people on the other end of this podcast to get something out of 30, 60. I'm trying to, we Combined both have 30 years. years of soccer development. Shout out Steven's birthday coming up here in a week. I'm about to be 31. Everybody give me presents. Um, so what I want is I have an idea of what shaped me, a moment that mm-hmm. shaped my soccer or set of experience that shaped who I am as a soccer player. Mm-hmm. I want you to get kind of selfish. And if you do have an idea of like, this is who I am as a player. This mm-hmm. thing gave me confidence. Yeah. Or... Was there anything like that? I think the single most important thing for me soccer-wise was um, my coach growing up put a lot of emphasis on you know your first touch and playing 5v2. I think I played more 5v2 than anyone else I've ever met. And I think that simple training exercise, which we didn't use it as a training exercise. We basically played 5v2 all practice, mainly because we only had like seven kids would show up to practice. Those, all, those seven kids were all very talented and it was a very competitive game of 5v2, but it teaches you first touch. It teaches you spatial awareness. It teaches you about thinking ahead. Um, all of those things that really matter, particularly if you're playing in the midfield. I mean, if you're playing out wide and your goal is to you know, get the ball and run at the defense, I don't know that 5v2 really matters as much. But for someone who's playing centrally, I think that you could play 5v2 forever. And that, as a coach, that's probably all I would do all practice. I believe that game is important to literally every position on the field, and it's central to every position on the field. Yeah. So you would agree, and I just – like you you making the distinction that an out-wide player not – 
I think it's still I think it's them? still important. But you know, if if I'm an if I'm a wide player and my role in the team is to dribble past the opposition defender, five v two isn't going to help me with that. But you're right. I mean, in terms of understanding how movement affects, I mean, it's just the most important thing. Five v two. What do you think makes a really good soccer player? And then I want to share my story of what shaped my soccer experience or, or one of them. Wow. I think, I think it's tough because at a base level, you have to have some athletic ability. I mean, it's really tough, right? You couldn't just take some very slow, very overweight, very short person and turn them into an amazing soccer player. Even Andreas Iniesta has a certain level of athleticism, right? So you have to have some base level of athleticism. I think then after that, a good spatial understanding and then, you know, good, good first touch. I mean, give me a kid with a good first touch and knows where he needs to be all day of the week. Who's the best player on your team, club team, consistently growing up? Yeah, the best player that I played with growing up um, consistently was Carl Reddick. He was um, uh, an extremely gifted athlete. How was his first touch? His first touch was good. Um he was an extraordinarily gifted athlete. Okay. And as a younger player that played out more than when he got older. Sure. I think, I think that, um, I mean, I think it's, it's a fair, I think it's a pretty obvious statement that if he had a better touch, he would have gone further in his soccer career. But I, I don't think, I mean, he was just the best player that I ever played with, and he was more of a physical player Can than you a teach technical that? player. You can't teach physicality. So how are we? How is that going to help anybody? How is what going to help anybody? <laughs> I know I asked you who who the best player was, but like, you can't teach athleticism. Yeah. So, in my opinion, it's a worthless thing to talk about. Even though I, I wouldn't say that, I think that you know if if I'm you know, a club coach and I have two kids, one who is an incredible athlete and one who is not an incredible athlete has a decent first touch. And I want the highest potential kids. I'm going to take the athlete and try to develop a first touch for him. Okay. Fair. My experience growing up was I began on a C team, which meant I was on a third level team and I was given freedom to be the center midfielder because I was the best player. And because I was given that freedom, I was told, everybody was told, this is what your position is. And then the, at the end, the coach would say, Steven, you're in the middle of the field, but go wherever you need to go. Mm-hmm. And I played on that team for like three years. And, it, and we just, we would be in other shitty leagues, but we would win. And, I would score a lot of goals mm-hmm. and it gave me a lot of confidence and it would also, it c- I couldn't just win the game myself because one, it would be too selfish to have done that. And it would, nobody else would have confidence or, as, or fun. So it was up to me to also get the shittiest kid on the team involved. And let me tell you, he was shitty. Like, he couldn't pass the ball. 
And so it was my job to find how he was yeah. best. What is his best purpose on the field? And it gave me a lot of freedom to try to coach him as mm -hmm. his peer, as like a fucking 10-year-old. Mm -hmm. That shaped me. And, and so now I look at soccer as like, one person on the field, the best person on the field, the best player, has a vision for how the game should go. Hmm. And they're the dictator because they feel most confident and you need them to perform in those crucial moments to assist, score, mm -hmm. make the plays that actually change the game at the margin. Like, yeah. who are the game-changing players? And... Yeah, I think what having having that? a leader like that, having someone who's the heartbeat of the team, who's going to score the late goal, who's just going to take the ball and say, "Screw it, I'm I'm going for it." I mean, even on the top teams, you have Kevin De Bruyne, who's just going to he's just even though he's surrounded by Raheem Sterling, that guy's amazing. You know, Kunaguero, he's he's got all the best players in the world around him, but he is still kind of the heartbeat of that team. And I think it's a fair point, and more I think a a point about life than soccer and that you you what you learned from that experience was hey i have to bring these people on the ship with me i can't just do it all myself that's a selfish thing i'm not improving the team as a whole i'm just racking up stats which you know isn't really the best thing i mean i wonder to take devil's advocate because that's why i'm on this podcast you know if you had been from the very start at a more highly competitive club environment how would that have shaped you you know it could have gone one of two ways one you could have got incredibly frustrated said hey this isn't fun i'm not having a good time and quit or you know it could have pushed you to, to be like hey i'm hey i'm working with and playing with all these really talented people i should uh, this is going to cause me to basically improve and and you could you know you could be a professional very good point i'll never know the world will never know how do you think a coach says to Lionel Messi what his role on the field should be? I think you have the goat of all goats mm -hmm. surrounded by obviously all world-class talent. Mm -hmm. Do you tell a team like that and then tell Lionel Messi, here's our 4-5-1. Messi, you're going to do this and that. No, they're just like, yeah. Everybody play your role and let Messi get the ball where he needs to get it and let him figure it out. You're exactly right. And I think you're right. You tell Lionel Messi, hey, you're going to start out on the right side of the formation or the center of the formation, but do whatever you want. But I think what you have to do is you have to construct the team around him. You can't have him playing right outside mid and then have Danny Alves also flying up the wing without having a right sided midfielder who's going to cover for their defensive frailty. Right. So I think you're right from an individualistic standpoint, you give your best players the utmost creative freedom, but you build a structure around them. Because otherwise, if I'm the opposition and I see Danny Elves flying up the right and Messi you know, cutting in from the right, there's no one on my left side, I'm just gonna say, hey, pass the ball to the left and just run up. That being said, I might not have any of the ball and it might not matter at all. That's right. right. But I think theoretically, you would have a weakness there that you might consider managing around. But I think your point is well taken. I think that's one of the great things about soccer is that the like the best players can just make such a massive difference and because a goal changes everything all you need is that one player who's going to have that, you know, moment of magic and it's it's cool to watch.
Here's what I love most about soccer, also known as the beautiful game, is there is so it's there's so much fluidity and it's such a dynamic game that there is no control of what happens while the game is playing. And but here's the thing, you need to get the ball in the net and it's it, it kind of works out to being more of a probabilistic way of approaching things. Can you get closer to the goal? How do you produce how do you manufacture the opportunities to get closer to the goal? How do you also how does the ball arrive in an area at the feet of the players that are most likely to score? And then yes, you find the best in practices, you find the players that score the best or work the best towards closer to the goal and you put them in positions there mm -hmm. but it's it's like a feeling it's not like this is how it's going to work out mm -hmm. how do we f how do we intuitively move the ball create space in one area and take space away in other areas so that Lionel Messi ends up with the ball at the top of the box with a left-footed shot yeah, no, and I think that's I think that's the, the coolest thing about soccer, right? It's that these eleven people are all trying to accomplish this one thing, and they're only going to be able to do it if they have a really good understanding of where they're going to be. Not from a, a coach or manager, but just intuitively. You know, that's why the Barcelona, you know, of the early two thousand tens was so successful. All those kids grew up together in La Masia. You know, they all played together growing up. And they knew intuitively how they were all going to react. So, you know, you could have AC Milan sitting back in some hyper-structured setup, but they all, the, all the Barcelona guys, they all knew exactly where they were going to be. It was like a sixth sense, right? And I think that's what's amazing about soccer in that in it, it differentiates itself from every other sport. You know, I'm a huge basketball fan, but basketball is just a completely different game where you have set plays, you have... Uh, just a much more structured approach whereas soccer as you said it's it's very fluid and and that's why it's so beautiful to watch and why i spend all day saturday basically <laughs> watching soccer shout out today was boxing day oh, yeah. arsenal looked much better with arteta as a coach still couldn't pull out the win um but you know i, I think they kind of deserve more than they got from that game so very excited about the future shout out michael arteta all right that's good we have on the podcast an actual fan of arsenal i'm more of a like i'm gonna watch the best teams play steven's a fake fan the, sam is the same way um so listeners at home i know we kind of ranted for a little while but this is kind of the thing i'm sure we'll get into more specific topics around soccer and then specific news but also i love the philosophy of the game um and maybe even want to break down some films sometimes of, of great goals. But anyway, that's a preview of what the soccer looks like between Sam and I talking. We would love to get another guest on here and, and add maybe a coach and interview them. How do they think about the game? What age groups do they coach? And just bring value to the soccer community because we both know so many true or false. Soccer gave you 98% of everything you need in life to be successful. I, I don't know about the probable the ninety eight percent probability, what, but what I think percent did no. I think soccer you? had an incredible impact on my life, um, and I certainly wouldn't be the person I am today without soccer. And I think it's a, a wonderful game, 
and I'm so happy that it's something I played. I destroyed my body, but I think it was a. <laughs> Your body was uh, going to get destroyed. My body no was probably going to get destroyed either way. Uh, I was not born for that uh, pressure. But yeah, I mean, I think soccer as a learning tool for young people, even if they're not going to go pro or go to college or whatever, I think it's an incredible tool and learning experience about teamwork, about discipline, about preparation, about sacrifice about communication i mean you the list goes on and health. on so ha, f- yeah physical health you know it's uh, it, and and doesn't it make you a better um what do you do as job in general uh a wealth manager does it make you better do you feel like you have a better you have an advantage over people because i think i do i think that growing up playing Teamwork, soccer communication yeah i think also it teaches you about commitment and discipline you know, where I think I am able to work harder and longer than other people and just being able to push through things. Um, I think that's, that's been really helpful. Moral of the story is you can get that from basically any sport or any art or anything that you go deep into and do over and over again for every day of your life, which is what we did. But we, we can only speak about this from a soccer perspective. So shout out to anybody else who feels that way. Very good. Okay. Do you want to say anything about relationships? Um, <laughs> shout out my future wife, Ellie. You're wow. amazing. I love you. Wait, say that again. I, I talked over you. You are amazing. I love you. Uh, I think relationships are wonderful. Uh, I was really excited to hear about Steven's relationship podcast. I think it's a really interesting idea. I think people can learn a lot from relationships. I think the main thing that I would say about relationships if I had to say something uh, it's incredibly important that you like the person you're with and you really enjoy spending time with them but I think the sometimes where people fall down is they don't necessarily have the level of respect or trust or things like that that you know in a long-term relationship really matter so I'm really excited to have that with Ellie shout out getting married in April Steven you better be working on that speech I need to work on something (laughs) because otherwise But yeah, I think uh, if we want to get more into the relationship thing, happy to do it on on another podcast. Um, Because I think I already have a question. Oh yeah, go for it. Um, In your opinion, what was what was my episode um, with Venus about? Um, Your episode with Venus. Well, I guess there was two, and not everybody had access to a second one. Yeah. Okay, maybe we won't go in that direction. Okay. However, what do you think? a relationship podcast could best be for listeners at home? Like what would the I think be? that the way that you started it, which is having discussions with a woman that you're involved with around the structure of relationships is really interesting in today's world where um, I think a lot of people are eschewing sort of the traditional relationship model, the one that I find very fulfilling, but some people don't find that as worthwhile and I think it's a really interesting idea to have two people try to work through that to figure out what's important to them in a relationship and how that might work going forward because even in in the the first conversations that you and V had you were just use you were using the same words to mean different things right so there's a lot of confusion just in the relationship world and I think trying to work through that on air in real time is incredibly interesting and, and valuable for for people who are considering you know 
either alternative types of relationships or just being much more intentional about the types of relationships that they have. Shout out Steven and Venus for being just revolutionary on the podcast game. We're going to take a moment for our second sponsor. The sponsor is Robert Burns Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Lay the proud usurpers low. What? <laughs> Sam, have a sip what, of this. What, and what is this? Have a sip right. of this and, and give the listeners right, I'm a doing, We're going to do a scotch whiskey tasting. Okay. He has a glass. He's looking at the color. He's having a sip. Do those weird things with your lips. Mm. Do it ASMR. It tastes very sweet. Do some ASMR into the mic. I thought that was oaky. It tastes sweet to me, but didn't Nate... you got to get Nate to taste it. He knows what the fuck's we, going on. We did, but him and I were in a different <laughs> place. Shout out, Nate. Shout out, Nate Ryder. It tastes good. I like it, actually. Hopefully this gets cut. Every time I take a shot, my nipples go hard. <laughs> I feel it burn in my stomach, but the whole nipples thing, that's down, a little weird. Down in my plums. <laughs> okay, we briefly went into relationships. Um, I feel like there's a lot more there, and uh, we're going to let sleeping dogs lie. For the moment, I heard that deal. I, I heard that phrase the other day. And I like I'm, it. Now I say it pretty often. I have the word "marginal" written down again, and it, the economy and economic themes. Mm. This is too big of a topic mm. to really cut into it because we're at thirty-three minutes. We're planning to go to fifty. However, um, Sam is a wealth advisor. We studied economics at college together. We were in many of the same classes. I have some strong opinions about what was taught in school. And also, I'm not a student made for the classroom. And I'm curious of your opinion um, on the things. Maybe maybe like what was like one of the most important lessons you learned from econ- from our economics yeah. courses that you use in everyday life or you as, well, a, I as think, a framework. I think microeconomics is fascinating and just the interaction between supply and demand and price elasticity and things like that on a micro level. Cause it's a, cause it's like a simple model. It's a simple but it, model it is very powerful. And I think, yeah, it's incredibly powerful and people, even though they intuitively understand, Oh, if you raise the price of things, people, less people are going to buy them, but not necessarily right. There's, convexity of demand and things like that so elasticities i think um i think that was really interesting in studying that theory and macroeconomic theory but i think the more that i've lived shout out to only being 30 years old who knows what i'll think in 20 years but the less that i think we actually control things like the overall economy um things like interest rates i think that people it makes people feel good to have some sense of control, but I think that they actually have much less control than they think they do about things outside of their day-to-day decisions. So I, I that's that's one of the things I've learned, um, and I think I think wasn't really taught in school because I think in school you're taught that hey you can control everything, here are all the variables, here's how it's all going to work, but in the real world. There are just too many things going on, you know, how one thing that's happening in China affects, you know, the U.S. Yeah. It's, the, it's just too large in scope. 
and humans can't really think that broadly, right? Humans can't think about the vastness of the universe. They can't think about the exponential complexity of the economic system. So they prefer to distill it down into, you know, capitalism versus socialism or, you know, you know, whatever, you know, whatever Things their get model baked is down into single ideas because that's all that we're really capable of handling. How does this quote make you feel? The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. That's a Friedrich Hayek quote of, he's an Austrian school, uh, economics and, um, actually shout out to the podcast econ talk. Mm. I, it's a tough one to listen to. Those it are is. dense, dense conversations. But here's the thing. The podcaster, Russ Roberts, at his core, believes that quote more than anything. And so when he brings people in to talk about complex mm -hmm. ideas, he will break it back down to what do you think you actually know that mm -hmm. you're actually just speculating about? Right. Because in a multi, in a <clears throat> super complex system like the economy, many, many, many variables, there are second order effects to things that we can't know. Yeah. We can't know right off the bat. And I think that's taught us our economics degree led us to that conclusion which is a really powerful thing, but it basically says you don't know what you don't know. I, so my, I, my take from education was, oh, you can, this is all f figurable out. You could figure this out. You could know it. That was my take. And I got to the real world thinking, okay, you know, here is how the world works. But then I feel like I got to the real world and just like none of it makes sense. You know, like it's just, this doesn't fit. The, nothing fits into a model nicely. And I think that's part of, I don't know if you want to go down this road. That's part of my sort of transition politically from more of a, a liberal leaning to more of a fiscally conservative leaning is just my my belief is that we really don't control anything. So the idea that we would try to control things through, you know, excess, uh, quote unquote, excessive regulation or trying to establish, you know, a different policies. I think, as you said, the second order effects and just how it impacts an entire system is unknowable. And I think the best thing is just to let, I mean, I don't, let's, just let stuff. Let's tie this back to soccer. Because I think what you're saying is, as a coach, if you try to overcoach and micromanage a player on the field, they're going to lose their creative freedom. Mm -hmm. In an economy... If you have too much regulation and you have to go through too much too many bureaucratic processes to get something to happen, it's going to slow down innovation. I I think that's like a almost a perfect analogy because what capitalism represents more than communism or you know in this whole spectrum, mm -hmm. it it um, basically says free to innovate will find out where the regulation needs to happen when there is um a failure where yeah and there a, will uh, i think as you said there will be failures right there will be um what are those called like a you're talking about like a black swan type no. thing or like there will be negative events 
but I'd rather have some bumps and bruises down the road than not have any innovation. I mean, I think, you know, that was Facebook's thing. What was their like quote? Like move fast move, and break things. Right. And I mean, you could say what you want about Facebook and social media. I think Andreas and Nate already, you know, had it out a little bit on there and I'm shots happy fired. <laughs> and I, 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 I tend to side with Dre. Sorry, Nate. But, um, yeah, I don't know where I was going. Well, you wanted to you wanted to say something controversial about Nate and Dre, so we would get more views on this podcast. I don't. That didn't actually happen, listeners. But I'm happy to say <laughs> anything if Stephen wants to slide me some paper. <laughs> no, I I, I, yeah, I don't. I don't think I have anything to say all on right. the topic. Well, I think something important was said out of all this. It's a complex system, and we would rather err on the side of freedom than on the side of prescribing solutions from a top-down approach mm -hmm. we basically need more systems to work bottom up mm -hmm. and um, I think a lot of people in political economy would say we need the same thing we need people taking responsibility for their local communities mm -hmm. and going into local government and making changes on their local level because the same what's true for us here in Philadelphia is not what's true for those in Texas yeah. or those across the world. Yeah, I think that was actually one of the things I learned from soccer as well. And I have to give Debo props where props are due. He would always say, control what you can control, right? You can't control what's going on in the rest of the world, but you can control what's going on in your own household, in your own community the products you're buying, the services that you're utilizing, right? So the idea that I think people are very upset and they want they want to prescribe what other people can do, but I think people just have to remain focused on, hey, control what you can control. You can control, you know, your local government to an extent, right? You can you can you can control what your kids watch and how your kids are educated and things like that. So I think putting the focus back on what people can control and what is truly improving their lives versus some you know mandated you know whole countrywide initiative i i don't see the value as say much. no more what is the only what is one of what is basically the only thing you can control in your life your mental state very good so was that the correct answer wow i'm pretty sure that's the only answer <laughs> you have the only the only control you really have is your reaction to things and you can choose to be a certain way uh, up in situations. What I'm getting at is you and I both come to the conclusion in the past couple of years that happiness is a choice and it's a state of mind. It's something that you do have control over. Mm -hmm. It's not outside of you. One quote that I really like is, the only handicap in life is a bad attitude. Mm. You could be in really shitty situations yeah. um, and have a positive attitude and really positive things come out of it. So do you have any thoughts about choosing happiness and where are most people going wrong, huh. steered wrong? I have a million thoughts about that. I don't even, I don't know where to start. I think that Dr. Ham, I, I think, I think that is, the prescription for a lot of people's woes in today's world. I mean, I think 
I think part of, if we're going to take it to social media a little bit, you know, going back to the conversations that you guys have had with, with Trey and Nate. I don't know if the listeners listen to those. So, all you right. Can't so, reference I them. will basically boil down to, I think, I think a lot of people are mad at social media and mad about other people that they interact with on social media, whether it's people from the opposite political leaning or it's people who believe in things like astrology. You know, people are mad at those people. But for reasons that I don't understand if and I think people haven't come to the same realization that we have that happiness is an internal state that's driven by yourself. Right. So going online and seeing all these people who have beliefs that are different than yours and getting mad at them. Well, that's kind of your problem. That's not their problem. Right. It it's a problem that you are unable to more directly control your state of mind and your state of being. I mean, if you if you read any book on Buddhism or Stoicism or, you know, even A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, I mean, there's just thousands of texts basically extolling the benefits of being able to control your state of mind in adversity. And even in today's world of 2019, there is not a whole lot of adversity that rich white people are facing, but at the same time, they're incredibly mad, right? So I think it's one of these things where people need to take more responsibility of their own happiness and not blame Donald Trump or, you know, you know, the gun control lobby or things like that. I mean, those are real issues that we're facing, but to become emotionally charged by them, I don't necessarily see a positive. I don't see the positivity in that. You've become indifferent and cold. Yeah, in a way. (laughs) I mean, I was waiting for you to be like, no, not. I mean, I think, I think, (laughs) as I think, the best that you can do is control what you can control. You know, if if something is important to you, then you know, go volunteer or you know, go donate. I I get that, and if it makes you feel better, that's that's great, and that's a real action. But being mad and anger by itself is not a useful emotion unless it's paired with action. It's wasted energy. Right. Um, you said you said basically that <clears throat> it's your problem. It's not their problem. Yeah. Um, Shout out to Andreas Cusis, 2014 in Brazil when he. <laughs> you remember that uh, in the bar? It's a some year. girl. Some girl basically told Dre that she didn't like him, and and he said that that was a her problem, not a him problem. And then she threw his lo- her lollipop at him, and he put it. In his mouth. Oh. <laughs> 2014 in Brazil. What a time. Yeah. What, what a time, time to be alive. alive. Jinx. I think we can't say anything more. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry for the long pause. I just like there's a point that I wanted that I want to get out of it. And Stevens drank too much Robert Burns single malt. The, scotch the sponsor here has sponsored too many drinks of mine. Um, I like your point and I think, I think you need to add a little more color to it because it seemed, it just sounds like you're kind of like, help, help us out a little bit. Yeah. I think, I I want to get, I don't want, I don't want to be indifferent to things that I don't agree with. I don't know that you have to be indifferent to them. I think you have to strategically more strategically deal with them. I don't have to get upset. Like you don't don't have have to get get upset. Right. I think get, I think 
the emotion of anger or outrage is the is the wrong emotion. And I think the emotion that I feel the most is just I feel bad for these people that they've been poorly educated either through, you know, the the actual education program or in terms of their quote unquote religion or philosophy of life. You know, I think that it's it's a it's a failure of our society to appropriately educate these people that is the true crime not the fact that people feel a certain way i like that ultimately you believe that people are inherently smart enough and will figure it out with time like inherent like you see the positive in people you don't see that it's like i need to step in here and solve this for you because you're not good enough to figure it out aren't you under that i i absolutely agree with that i and i think I think that's kind of where there was a little bit of like where you you kind of said something where you thought this is Nate's belief versus your belief was like that people are smart, even though people are dumb. I think generally (laughs) I think that's pretty, pretty (laughs) accurate. I think generally people are self-interested and those self-interests can be aligned into what is best for them long term i think obviously people make bad decisions every day and there are cultural reasons for that there are educational reasons for that but i think on the whole people are self-interested and will look to maximize their experience on this earth and that means different things for different people for some heroin users that just means they're doing as much heroin as they can wow i just heard like a utility function come out of your mouth but the utility function was they're going to maximize their experience here on earth and i think and i think part part of the problem is that some people don't realize the experience that they can have you know they're born into a, a horrible situation and they don't have perspective they don't have perspective they or they have the wrong perspective, right? Where they now have social media and they see Kim Kardashian and they think that is what life is about. You know, so I think people have bad role models. I think that... You think, but we'll figure it out. I think eventually we'll figure it out. I think, and I and I think it's... Because you think at the end of the day, there's like a truth or there's like something that says there is this, a, is va- this is real value versus this is what we're just... Yeah, it's it's hard to know. I feel like I have found that truth in the form of the belief that life is meaningless but is about happiness. It's about maximizing your long-term happiness and being as happy as possible, which is different than pleasure, right? Because pleasurable experiences can be elating in the moment but leave you less happy, you know, the next moment. So I think that's what I found to be the meaning of life. And I think my actions tend to follow that but i think other people haven't come to that same conclusion and or are just living you know paycheck to paycheck meal to meal and don't have the ability to think about those things and i think helping people come to that realization is one of my goals in life which is why you might step onto the steph curdy show and share your wisdom that's part of it happy to happy to share Dude, I thought that was, uh, I I mean, I thought that was an amazing point um, because you're getting to something that is important to me and it's how do we find perspective for the situation that anyone's in? 
you can be born into a perfect situation and have no perspective Mm -hmm. of like what is real life like and then reality doesn't match what you what you grew up with your happiness is simply a function of your expectations minus your reality right so if you have low expectations of things you know and of of yourself and of of life then when you when your experience and reality actually exceeds those expectations, you're going to be happy, you know, and part of people's expectations are that, you know, I should, I should have this or I should have that, or, you know, I need a BMW or the government didn't give me this or what, you know, I think people need to reduce their expectations because this is the greatest time to be alive that there, that there ever has been, you know, poverty is at much decreased levels the world is incredibly wealthy. I mean, it's a great time to be alive, but I think sometimes people's expectations um, are go awry, which leads to their being unhappy. You can still dream big and and operate under the low expectations thing, right? Because if I have very big aspirations, will I just be miserable because I because I'm because it's a very difficult thing to get to? I believe you can operate with low expectations, but still have big dreams. Do you believe that? I would agree. And I think it's about having expectations of, of certain things, right? If your dream is to build a multi-billion dollar company and you're okay, you know, living in a tiny crappy apartment, you're going to be happy because your expectation of life is you're going to be in some tiny crappy apartment. But if your company does something, you'll have the amazing feeling of success that, you know, you've exceeded your expectations. Um, I think it it can be hard when you're looking at the highest performing levels of society, right? Where in order to be, for instance, an amazing soccer player, you need to have an incredible amount of confidence and belief in yourself. So, but, and if at the same time you have low expectations of your performance, I don't know that that's going to work out as well. Um, So I don't know. You'd have to, you'd have to think about that, but. I, I'm very happy with our conversation here. Do you have anything else that you'd like to bring up? Did we review the podcast yet? We did not review the give podcast. Me some, uh, give me your closing thoughts. Well, we still haven't talked about religion. I mean, that's a freaking 20-minute conversation. Can we make it a 10-minute conversation? Tell me to make it a two-minute conversation. <laughs> make it a two-minute conversation. Tell me to make it a minute conversation. Make it a minute conversation. I asked a question last night at a family dinner function, friend and family dinner function, about a Christmas idea, kind of. Uh, why was Ju- why was Jesus crucified? And it brought up a whole history of religion, and it taught me a lot because there were people with different viewpoints in the room that were un- unafraid to share and had the respect to hear other people's opinions. I got a free pass to ask as many questions as I wanted, got a history lesson, learned a lot of new words, but also an idea of why Jesus was crucified. This was the religious topic that I wanted to talk about, but you can't just say that and then wrap it up. But here's what I learned. What I learned was you can absolutely... Be live a life that follows all of the teachings of mainstream religions, Judaism, 
Islam, Christianity, and I'm going to speak specifically to Christianity. You can live a life that treats thy neighbor well and and lives by the golden rule and would without knowing anything about Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so I can choose to believe that oh man, this is going to I can choose to believe that Jesus was as our Lord and Savior, which is like part of Christianity. But also the other big implication is that he arose from the dead and that means that there's an afterlife and I don't necessarily believe in an afterlife. Help me out here. Are you following what I'm saying? I hear what you're saying. Am I still going here? I think what you're trying to say is that the tenets of religion can be really good even though the story and mythology around them might seem unbelievable in today's world. Is that what you're trying to say? It's just a thousands of years of history and tradition wrapped into a narrative that mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know why would I know that that's true when like things happened a decade ago that people talk about that it's just like why should I believe that narrative when I can operate with those teachings without having I, I think it, without to me it? to me that is the key for modern life is that we no longer need these religious institutions we have all the knowledge you know we have structure and maybe the institutions that we have have maybe not been as forthright or positive you know the catholic church and you know things with the priests and stuff like that but i think your idea that religion can be a positive force and help inform our way of living is why it's been around for so long but maybe the institutions and the mythology around it is outdated and maybe we need new institutions we need new you know ways of of coming together and thinking about life possibly i also think the other part of it is if some people believe that there is an afterlife or some version of something, then it matters what your actions are now. Mm -hmm. And you want to know that you're going to heaven and not hell. And I just don't believe anything happens after you die. I think it's a lot like before you were born. And so now does it really matter what my actions are? Yeah. I think, I think it's a good, a good point you bring up that, people's meaning of what you think the meaning of life is, is actually surprisingly important and impacts your decisions, right? Whether you think that, you know, your meaning of life is to do good because there's an afterlife or if you think it's all chaos and it's all physics and it's all playing out, you know, in some grand scale, that can be your religion. You know, you can choose to believe, you know, that happiness is the, the purpose of life. I mean, whatever you think the purpose of life is will inform your decisions on how to live your day to day life, I think. Guys, that's been the Steph Curdy Show. I'm going to wrap it up there, Sam. If we so choose, we may make a private podcast, but I would like to hear from some people about the soccer talk that we had. If anything else stands out to you, let us know, because I think we're going to have a standalone soccer podcast. Sam, thanks for coming by the Steph Curdy Show. Thanks, Steven. Ciao.